Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War. Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. On the planet. With your host, Paul Murphy, and expert coach, Nick Nanavati. Hello, everyone. Welcome to an episode of Art of War. My name is Paul Murphy, your host. I'm joined by Nick Manavati. What's going on, everyone? So happy to be back. And special guest, Mr. Marshall Peterson. Hello, hello, hello. Marshall, thanks for joining us. We, we've been talking about you. You've been playing Orcs. I know people are going to love this episode. I want to remind folks that this is part one of a two-part episode. We're going to be talking about all kinds of things about your secondaries you pick, how you approach games. Um, of course, tell, tell people how well you've been doing with this faction that, that folks think are struggling. Uh, it is going to be a good time. The first hour, we're going to be talking about this um, in a way that I, hopefully people find engaging and enjoy uh, and very orky. And it's just going to get better and better in the next episode yeah absolutely marshall just came off an awesome run at the uh gw us open in seattle congratulations marshall how'd you end up finishing up uh thanks uh well it kind of depends on how you look at it uh from games workshop point of view essentially they have this bracket system after the fourth round um and going by that i got fourth place going by the itc which takes the win-loss ratio within those brackets i got 10th place Gotcha, gotcha. But in any case, it's an over a nearly 200-person event, and it was eight rounds long. And I know you made it all the way to the semifinals before getting knocked out. I had the pleasure of watching two of your games on stream, and you quite really know what you're doing with this army. So I'm excited to give some Orc players some much-needed love and attention. Well, like I mentioned, folks think that the, you know this faction may be struggling, especially as it compares to something like Tyranids. But you were rocking the house. I mean, with some expert play, a novelist design. You know, I want to hear about it. Yeah, I mean, it was a great event, and I had a lot of fun with it. Definitely, uh, orcs, as they used to play, are hurting. I definitely agree with that. Um, so it was kind of an experiment to see how I could create a very, like you said, sort of abnormal list that could come into these events and hopefully show up well. Well, I'm I'm super excited to hear it. When I watched your army play, I definitely was so excited to see orcs being used differently, and I was I'm all about learning about how this works. So let's get into it, Marshall. Why don't you break down what your list was? All right. So as far as list design went, I actually took a pretty alternative approach to what I normally do, where essentially I just looked at where the meta was at the moment, specifically with Armor of Contempt. And I just thought, man, orcs are going to have a hard time versus Armor of Contempt. I do think that buggy, spam, speedwa is good, but it's not quite good enough in the current meta. I think it really struggles. Uh, because of that, I thought, okay, the alternative, which I usually like to run with, is leaning a lot more into the infantry side of the orc codex. Of course, the moment you get Armor of Contempt in there, things start to go downhill pretty quick, uh, especially with just those AP1 choppers. So I figured the best way to counteract that was uh, look at the codex and basically make note of every single mortal wound output that it has. I just kind of wrote down all the mortal wounds that the uh, codex dishes out, created a ratio of how many mortal wounds per point a unit did. Uh, so for example, if a unit is 90 points and it does three mortal wounds over the course of a game, that's 30 points per mortal wound that you're spending, right? And basically filling a list with as many mortal wounds as I could per points and then uh, polished it up from there with the units that I felt would play the mission enough to kind of balance out the tech into mortal wounds. That meant it played well into armor, into monsters, as well as infantry and especially Eldar and Harlequins due to all those uh, small one damage attacks from the infantry. Yeah, what an interesting approach to list writing. I, I like. I have. We all have our own approaches, and I've heard a lot over the years. But I, I never have I heard someone say, "I'm just going to write down on a piece of paper all the ways I can do mortal wounds and break it down mortal wound by point." Because especially with orcs, people 
don't think it's a mortal wound per point kind of army to think a thousand sun spamming psychic phase mortals or something like that. What? What did you find? Uh, so I found a couple of things. So I actually played a GT right before the Seattle Open, the weekend before. So a whole lot of games in that two-week time period. And I tested out a list that was a little bit more Mortal Wound driven. And what I found was the Mortal Wounds in the Orc Codex are great, but they do better if you're able to decide where they go. Uh, for example, a previous iteration of this list had a burn bomber inside of it because the burn bomber between its bombs as well as its strat throw out a ton of mortal wounds per point. Maybe not as good as the Mouse Scepter, but you know. Uh, but the problem with it was the mortal wounds weren't super directed. And so even though it did a lot of mortal wounds, it was like sitting with one or two wounds sitting on a Zoanthrope, maybe a couple mortal wounds on a Neurothrope or a Venomthrope. That just didn't really do anything for the game. So I kind of threw that out. And yeah, just being able to say, okay, the, all these bomb squigs are going to throw mortal wounds at this one unit that otherwise I can't deal with or to snipe out these characters. That's another nice thing about all the Orc Mortal Wound shenanigans is there's a lot of ways to snipe out characters. So generally supporting characters, psychers, um, especially things like warlocks, uh, uh, troop masters, all those things are very easy for the army to kind of just pluck out between the bomb squigs and splash damage. That's very nice. Well, I didn't mean to distract you. I just got very excited. Why don't we just go through the list top to bottom? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so first of all, there's, of course, the clan culture that I had to pick. I decided to go for Blood Axes, uh, and I'll go a little bit deeper into that after the list as to why that was. Um, I did throw in one knob on Smash a Squig, uh, specifically because just getting those Mortal Wounds on the charge, it's very cheap for the Mortal Wounds you get. I put a Relic on him for a couple extra Mortal Wounds. And you can actually see in uh, the streamed game with the Harlequins how that fared, being able to get out-of-phase wounds onto things, onto transports, characters, uh, units, just very useful to kind of pop things open and be able to charge them. Uh, then for my characters, uh, one of the benefits of Blood Axes is you essentially get a free extra war boss. One of the big hits that orcs got, kind of like this sub-nerf, is that now that you can't get more than one clan in your army, there's not as much incentive to bring in more than one detachment, which then makes it harder for you because war bosses, which are amazing, you can only have one per detachment. Fortunately, the Beast Snaggers essentially, uh, not Beast Snaggers, the Blood Axes essentially come with their own special war boss, Boss Snickrot. Um, he's really great. He's only 95 points. He's got six or seven attacks. Uh, with He comes based with the Warlord traits, brutal but cunning, so every attack he does goes all the way through again. And it's just a really great way to get a damage dealer up the field, giving that plus one to hit to all the commandos early on. Then to finish out the uh, HQ slots, I've got a war boss in Mega Armor. Uh, he's got Counter Tactics, which is a Warlord trait from the uh, Blood Axes like special army uh, supplement that came in Octarius. And what that does is he has a six-inch aura for all core units to heroically intervene. And I'll explain why that's a little more important once we get to the commandos. And then he has the Crushing Armor. Again, Mortal Wounds on the charge. Always great. Then I have a Warboy in here. Uh, he's essentially a Mortal Wound and Command Point farm. Uh, uh, he's just got a couple of basic powers, doing a couple of Mortal Wounds here and there. Uh, but most importantly are his Warlord Trait and Relic, which allow him to give me a command point in addition on my command phase for an extra four up and then he discounts one strategic ploy stratagem every battle round and orcs have a lot of good stratagems following that so i'll basically be spending that every battle round so if he lives for three turns that's a net average of about four or five extra command points just as good as a uh, just as good as like a tau for, uh what are they called i can't even remember you know what i'm talking about. ethereal so oh, yeah, yeah. tons of I was trying to remember what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Then I had three squads of Beast Snagger Boys. Just basic. They're good. Get that invuln in there. A couple extra attacks, strength. 
uh, just they just play the mission well, and they're just good troops to have. Then, uh, what I think are really the MVPs of the list are three three squads of ten commandos. In those squads, we have the Power Claw and the Breacher Ram, just to get all those damage to attacks in there. Just three full squads with bomb squigs. Then also in elites, we've got three squads of tank busters. Each squad has two bomb squigs, three rocket, uh, four rocket launches, and then a tank buster with a tank hammer. Tank hammers are hilarious. You make one attack. If it hits, the model dies, and you deal D6 mortal wounds. Then in fast attack, we got two squads of squig hog boys, one squad of three, one squad of six, each with bomb squigs. Then we got a squad of 10 storm boys, two battle wagons, which basically contain all the tank busters, 20 of the 30 troops, and then whatever characters I want to. And then I had a couple extra points, so I just threw a mech gun in there, because who doesn't like a random mech gun to sometimes it, spike damage? It did seem to just to be able to round, round out the points. You, when you look at the other composition in your list, I'm sure you, you used it. As we saw you using it you know, to move around and actually do things on the table other than shoot. Yeah, it sat on back points. It didn't really do all that much other than just sit back. Uh, sometimes it was nice that the opponent had a flyer because it could stay behind obscuring and still get some shots out. Yeah. So, all right. I can see how you've got all the random mortals in your army. Right? Bomb squigs on the tank buster bombs. They do mortals. How exactly do those work? That's a great question. Uh, so, bomb squigs, they can only be taken by certain units. They're five points apiece, and usually your unit has to be a certain size in order to bring them. For example, they only come one per three squigs, uh, two per five tank busters, or one per ten commandos. And I believe those are the only ways you could actually get them. Uh, what they do is, when the unit is selected to shoot or fire overwatch, uh, that's important because it means that the commandos can't advance and do it, for example, but they can shoot into combat since they have pistols. You kind of have to work around that there. But if they're able to be selected to shoot or fire overwatch, you can release a bomb squig. It can only be released once per bomb squig. You just pick a unit that isn't an aircraft within 12 inches, and you roll a dice. On a 3-up, it does D3 mortal wounds. If it's going after a vehicle, then it works on a 2-up instead. That's it. That's all it is. It's uh, very simple, but super effective because it does not care about line of sight. It does not care if what it's shooting is a character. You just throw it out, deal some mortal wounds. And this army, uh, each unit can only throw out one squig bomb a turn. So, for example, even though tank busters have two, they're only able to let go of one. But it means that you can basically send out eight bomb squigs in one turn. That'll delete any character, vehicle, heavily damage any monster. So they're just great utility. That's really cool. Yeah, I've, I've seen the bomb squigs. I've ran commandos. I'm like, these are awesome. But never have I taken them in mass like this. This is really sweet. What's the range on those? 12 inches, you said? 12 inches, yeah. Okay, so uh, I guess we get more specific into how you use it in, into each individual matchup in part two. That's really what that's about. But I want to know, I guess, how this army really comes together. Because to me, it's it's tied together in, in weird coolness through mortal wounds and, and whatnot, but it looks very hodgepodge. Like, how does this army deploy and play on the table? What's the premise? Yes. So, with the deployment, uh, it should be noted as kind of a side thing. If you're going into a tournament or a friendly game or an event uh, with 30 commandos and snickrot, it is a lot more effective if you're going to events that have really nice terrain, especially terrain that has at least a couple pieces that are windowless. Uh, for example, in Games Workshop terrain, they have uh, fully enclosed first floor walls on all of the big ruins. Um, and that's, of course, very important for the commandos. The reason why is in deployment is generally you want to put all of your commandos either slightly forward or sort of mid-table behind those walls so they can't be seen. And then maybe one unit back in your own deployment just for retaliation purposes. Then you've got most of the army just inside of those two battle wagons, usually just set up to push forward, uh, make sure that your half of the table is your half of the table. And uh, the squigs can generally hide behind ruin walls, uh, behind obscuring terrain. And it plays 
pretty defensively, actually. It's, I think it's correct to say that it's sort of a hodgepodge of units. Uh, in fact, I think if you were to count them all up, you'd have something along the lines of 19 different units in the army, uh, which allows for a lot of maneuverability, which is another reason why I took the blood axes. Because blood axes, in addition to giving you cover when you're more than 18 inches away, which isn't really all that great, what else it does is it gives you the ability to fall back and shoot or charge. What that does is it allows your, all of your units in your entire army to just have tons of utility. You're always able to play with every single unit and just making sure that every point you spent on every model gets its say. You're making sure that your units are protected inside the battle wagons so they're only dying when you want them to. You're at least able to use them a couple times because usually they're able to activate after the battle wagon dies. It means that they can't tag you in combat. It means that if your squigs are in combat on one side of the battlefield but you really need them somewhere else, who cares? You just fall back, they're moving 10 inches, and they can charge elsewhere. Uh, it means, especially with blood axes, uh, you can spend stratagems to be able to advance and perform actions, or to perform actions and still shoot. So your tank busters are being able to throw out those tank, uh, those quick bombs and still be able to activate. And essentially, it's just a ton of units. I like to describe it almost as a beehive. Generally, you're playing it pretty reserved in your deployment zone, and as soon as your opponent realizes, oh man, I'm falling behind in this game, they make a big push, and the army kind of acts as a beehive with every single unit being able to go wherever it wants and do whatever it wants making sure it's getting all of its activations and everything for its points that's super cool i also love that you tailored your list design very specifically for this terrain format and because the gw format is something well known at this point and you can very easily figure out what it's about so kudos to you for that it's a great way to list build i love the way it plays i think this kind of bring bring people to the orcs is a really effective way to play them i haven't been able to pull it off with the new codex so, or like the latest one, I should say. Um, I'm really excited to see that you have. Um, Paul, you have any questions on this army? Yes. Yeah, we mentioned that it, or it seem, may seem like kind of a just a collection of units doing things, but what you, you do, what you do is collect a purpose uh, and really encourage people to do that if they find that they're not performing as well as they want. Find something that they think will give them an edge. In this case, you chose mortal wounds, which, yeah, we know mortal wounds are, are good, but then you specifically sought out ways and applied some logic to figure out what you could take, and then that influenced what you should take and then you put it on the table with a lot of tactics yeah and i would say speaking of sort of the purpose of the army a really big part of it is again just making sure everything is doing what it wants to and one of the best ways to do that is uh, for example using the terrain to help mitigate what your opponent is able to do in the shooting phase and then in the combat phase a big part of this army is the combination of two things uh, probably the biggest benefit that this army list has is the combination of the ability for core units to heroically intervene and then the stratagem uh, for the blood axe specifically and only for commando units surprise uh, this works really well it's essentially a free interrupt for any of the commando units so long as they're all within terrain that means that if your opponent comes after you and charges with only one unit you're able to heroic in and you get to fight first. And you engineer that too. You actually, you're in terrain. You're specifically, like you mentioned, almost like waiting for them to show up. Exactly. Uh, since you're reactive in the way you play your army, you're able to decide where you are. So you're able to be inside of that terrain, uh, being able to heroically intervene if they try to charge past you, your commandos can just heroic into them. Uh, Snickrot is technically a commando for the keyword, which means that he can also use this. And you're basically able to say, okay, you're charging me with one unit, I'm interrupting. You're charging me with two units, uh, I'm fighting as much as you are on your own turn even if they throw three units into you they fight once you interrupt for the other unit you're surprised on the third one and you're fighting twice as much as they are they have to throw five different units into your army before they're even fighting more than you in their own combat phase and it really helps you sort of take control of that uh, turn. Yeah, I can see how it's so hard to actually engage your army. I know you were able to get a lot of surprise off on a lot of people effectively in the, watching the the uh, 
stream games. Do you tell your opponents you have the strat and then like they just don't have a choice but walking into it because it's so hard to play around? Oh yeah. Every single opponent I like for example you watch the Harlequin game, his Harlequins came out and they charged in. And basically I just said, by the way, letting you know they're surprised and I was like, yeah, they're inside the train feature. It means you don't count as charging. It means you're minus one to hit. And a lot of the times they just kind of look at it they say, okay, well, either I'm charging you or you're charging me, right? And he kind of had to make the decision, especially in that case. He's like, well, either I just don't take the objective or I get hit with the surprise. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but yeah, it's it's very uh-huh. nifty. A lot of the times, just the opponent doesn't really have the choice at that point. I think we joked around about it on stream is that it's not it's no longer a surprise, but they they did. They just can't play around it. They've get you've you've now engineered the, you know this whole thing, including the strategy of being exactly where it's the least opportunistic area for them to charge. But in order to get ahead in the game or stay ahead in the game or even get back into the game, they've got to come to you on your terms. Absolutely, and uh, surprise is especially hilarious uh, for a lot of reasons. But it helps you fight back against deep strikers coming in your army, people charging you. It's just a really, really great strategy. So I'm trying to, I guess, they'll figure out how your army works. It makes sense with respect to how you deploy it. And it makes sense with uh, how how it all comes together conceptually. Like draw your opponent to you and you just get to activate with all your units or all scoring points and whatnot. It just looks like such a hodgepodge of units. Like I can't get past that. So have you you seem to have played this army a lot, right? So you know, you've tested out that burn Obama you'd said, but the mortals weren't targeted enough. But why are there like beast snaggers and commando well not commandos, but why are there all these units and not any of the other units? Like have we tested the exact or the whole or codex and this is the magic sauce? <laughs> uh, well it's kind of has to do with a couple of layers. I look at it as there's countercharge threats, there are uh, just utility threats, and there's things that are core to the army. Uh, kind of looking at the Beast Snaga boys, it's like, well, that's kind of weird. Um, but they're specifically tied together with the Battle Wagon and the Tank Bustas. I kind of treat them almost as one big unit, and it's just hard to say yes to some of them without the others. For example, you would never take Tank Bustas unless if you thought that they would live a couple turns to actually do things, which means you have to put them in a Battle Wagon. But a Battle Wagon can hold 20 people, so why would you spend 120 points to protect your tank busters without throwing in some troops as well? So now suddenly you have some OPSEC that's pretty good at combat, that's able to jump out of the battle wagon when you need it and take people's points away, kill some important units. And so that kind of just operates. I wouldn't really take any of those units unless if I was taking them as a complete package. Uh, then of course the commandos, they're sort of the core of the army. Uh, they act as just sort of the bread and butter. They're holding the board. They're allowing you to use a lot of good stratagems. They're sort of contributing to the mortal wound output. Their combat is of course amazing. So they're kind of the core bread and butter. You've got the battle wagons as sort of support and uh, retaliation. Uh, the squigs act as a sort of countercharge threat, being able to throw out either a couple squigs or a full squad of six, depending on how, how scary the opponent is. And then you have a couple of characters to add utility, get your command points, and sort of like grease the gears, make it so that, okay, you are able to heroically intervene, so you're using your commandos. You're getting enough command points, so you're able to make use of all the new stuff that Blood Axes give you. So you kind of have that core, you have your support, utility, and and uh, you kind of have all your bases covered. Very I do have a question: Is uh, you know kill rigs? We see them in lots of orc lists where they're they're very powerful. Uh, seem to be winning a lot. Why are there none in your list? Uh, so there's no kill rigs in my list uh, for a couple reasons. I find that generally, especially in the current meta where there's a whole lot of venom cannons, it only takes a couple venom cannon shots to drop a kill rig. So if you're getting your use out of your kill rigs, it means you're taking like at least two. And taking at least two kill rigs with an army like blood axes, where you also need your other characters to get all of these really good warlord traits and relics out there suddenly you're just giving up assassinate basically Can you break down some of the warlord traits and relics these characters are giving us yes 
so the most boring, I suppose, is on Snickrot. Uh, Snickrot, his Warlord trait, is the one where any fight, any attack that doesn't go to the damage step, he does it again. He's got seven attacks, he's sitting on twos, wounding most things on twos or threes. Um, so he's just kind of a little damage output. He has a six-inch aura just natively to give all of these commandos plus one to hit. Um, he's just good utility. Then you go on to the Warboss, and the Warboss has that six-inch aura of heroic intervention that allows the commandos to be able to have a wider area of effect, uh, make sure that they're able to surprise any units that try to charge you. Usually they'll line the outside of a wall with commandos, um, which means that it, basically if you're ever trying to charge any units, you have to also be in combat with commandos, and it lets you pop that surprise stratagem, because it affects anything in combat with them. Then uh, he also has the Crushing Armor that helps contribute to the mortal wound output of the army, especially out of phase, allowing to break a transport and letting somebody else charge in in the same phase. Um, and then finally, the other two, probably most important for the army, is the one that discounts the strategic play stratagems without a minimum. Uh, so for example, Surprise becomes zero command points once a battle round, which is great. Or you can uh, spend one CP instead of two to be able to advance and perform actions, get those good bits or those uh, R&D points. And then he also gives you a random command point on a four-up each command phase. So yeah, it, those just really help the army. Usually you're seeing relics and warlord traits boost the output of the characters, kind of playing a hero hammer. This army really pulls back on that and says, okay, the characters are sort of good at damage, but really they're there to give that utility to the army. I love how subtle everything is and it just comes together. I'm starting to see it. I really am. It's pretty cool. You had mentioned some secondaries in that description. And I think it's about time we get into like what you actually take with this army. Yeah. Uh, so as I mentioned, uh, I tried to steer away from Assassinate. You can get up to 13 points against this army with it, um, but usually that Warboy is sitting really far back in the army. There's not a lot of motivation to throw forward the war boss, etc. So if your opponent takes Assassinate, you're not really losing much by holding your characters back because they are more utility. And oftentimes people will expect orcs to throw their characters forward because that's how they used to play. Um, and it just kind of really hurts there. Um, in addition to more secondary denial is psychic interrogation is usually really good against this army. But because you have those battle wagons with so much transport capacity, if someone takes psychic interrogation, you just backline the knob on the squig, put all the other characters in a battle wagon, and you guarantee deny those points. So after you're denying a couple of points on secondary, then you can look at what this army can actually do. The orc-specific secondary get the good bits is actually really nice for this army, especially if you're able to get a big old line-of-sight blocking terrain piece on an objective. What get the good bits does, it's an orc-specific secondary, so perhaps a lot of people haven't heard of it. You pick three objectives outside of either player's deployment zone. If there's more than three objectives outside of the deployment zones, then your opponent picks, then you pick, then your opponent picks. Then, you're able to, with any core unit in your army, start to perform the action at the end of your movement phase. Then, if they're alive and still on the objective on your next command phase, you get three points per objective, and you can do it on more than one objective as many times as you want over the course of the game. The reason why that one is effective is because if you get that big piece of train on there with a little line of commandos on it, you can have some storm boys, or literally everything in the army, barring the characters and vehicles, can do that action. So you have a unit do the action, they're obscured so they can't be shot, and they can't be charged because you have that wall of commandos able to use surprise. And usually it's you're picking the objective closest to your deployment zone, so your opponent kind of looks at it and says, I would have to dedicate a huge portion of my army to wiping out that building and only to stop me from getting three points, which usually just is not worth it. And so oftentimes you'll get that turns two through five and you get 12 points on it. 
since there's a lot more objectives, if you're already winning in the game, you in theory can get up to nine points if you start the object, uh, actions on turn four. So if it was a really uh, fight back, die kind of game. Alternatively, if you feel like there aren't really any good objectives for that, you can also take uh, Retrieve Knockman Data because Blood Axes can just walk off the table. And so you can take any of your core units, walk them off the table, bring them back later from any other table quarter throughout the game, and be able to get R&D. So even without having a ton of utility small storm boy squads, usually you can just take any wounded unit, leave, and come back for points. So it plays the action game really well. I would often take Stranglehold. Um, that's always a really good one for this army. Um, just really easily able to take your triangle. Like I said, it's a pretty reactive army, so you're able to sort of play cagey with them, which is kind of weird considering their combat orcs, but you can do it. And uh, finally, the last secondaries, if the opponent has no psychers, great. Your war boy can just interrogate. You can get a lot of points that way. Or lastly, you could also look into the other orc-specific secondary if you're taking R&D, and you can take the orc-specific secondary where you get points just the same way as grind them down, but rather than over the course of the turn, it's specifically in the fight phase. So the more units you kill in combat, the more points you get. So if you're finding your opponent has a lot of guns, or they're maybe only throwing one or two units forward each turn, you're able to sort of rack up those points by just killing things. So no matter what the opponent's army is, you always have good secondaries that'll get you at least around 12 points. Uh, with taking enough points away from your opponent, as mentioned on the other common secondaries, you're usually able to swing the win. Were there any armies that you struggled with, like where that that secondary plan just you had to throw it out the window and start from scratch? You know, any any list designs out there that you felt like that was a, a struggle against? Yes, actually, uh, I think the only army that I encountered that week that kind of gave me a hard time on the secondary play were specifically Tyranids. Tyranids have this sort of weird thing going for them where they usually aren't taking enough monsters to give bring it down. They're really good in combat, so I can't rely on. Uh, the stomp them good. And so I'm kind of sitting in this weird zone where two of them are really easy. For example, uh, get the good bits and stranglehold, but I can't really figure out what that last one is supposed to be. I think if I were to try going forward again, knowing that Tyranids are as common as they were, especially at the Seattle Open, I might consider dropping the Whirboy uh, for some other utility character keeping the same Relic and Warlord trait, and just really giving me that ability to specifically go after Psychers. Because I generally found that Psychic Interrogation wasn't the most common one I would take, and so being able to get more points by killing Psychers against Tyranids would be great. Being able to get rid of those Malceptors, any Hive Tyrants they throw out, um, I feel like that would have given me more points against every Tyranid player. And since they're the big baddie right now, that's what you have to look for. Yeah, the secret's out. You will see more of them you know, coming up in the coming weeks. And I know we'll talk more about this and how you play in the certain armies in the second part of the episode but you mentioned switching out for a different type of character what what attributes of that character would you look for if you considered it? uh well that character basically would be looking for a character that's eligible for the two relics uh which means it would have to be a non-vehicle character which is the majority then you would look for another character that is pretty low on points generally you want that guy to just be on the table as long as he can because every turn he's on the table for you're basically getting another command point and a half uh, so you want him to stay throughout the whole game. So you want somebody who can backline pretty well, uh, somebody who can participate with their other innate abilities. For the word boy, that was his psychic ability to interrogate or uh, sometimes deal some mortal wounds. So you'd kind of look across the orc book, maybe uh, a pain boy or a pain boss, or even just a little 25-point mech, uh, something to just sit back and 
hold those relics and warlord traits. With those, uh, you know, Tyrion's being being the menace, and then with the uh, the terrain being what it was, did, were you having to find yourself play even more KG because those things can can fight? You're pretty good at fighting, but yet how do you, keeping the initiative might be a, an issue. But you've got the surprise. Like, well, we saw it in the finals, or sorry, in the semifinals, where you eventually weren't able to capitalize uh, all these tactics into one thing. Was it because of the secondary choices, or was it because something in the strength of Tyranids, or or maybe just some bad luck? Uh, sort of a mix of both. Uh, usually, I don't like to look at bad luck, especially with orcs. That's why orcs are great for me. You're rolling so many dice that usually luck doesn't take too much into account. But uh, I found that so against Tyranids, the army does pretty well. I think I'm two wins versus three losses if you combine both tournaments together. So before that, I lost in those semifinals. I had also won in the semifinals against a particularly good or- uh, Tyranid player. And it's sort of a game where you want to play cagey enough that you're trading out points with each other and then going for a big push a little bit later in the game. Uh, because with the Tyranids and the Orcs, if you crash into each other, you're going to both evaporate very quickly. And you don't, you just don't want the bad side of that coin flip if you just happen to be destroyed slightly more than they are, and then you get steamrolled. So generally, you want to trade pretty casually back and forth and then explode the beehive turn three or maybe four uh, towards the end of the game and try and swing it. Uh, that seemed like the best way to generally play that. And uh, that's one of the reasons that it became very difficult against in the semifinals is because if you watch it, he made a big push forward with basically all of his units. And in addition to that, he rolled really, really well against my battle wagons, blew them all up, and it kind of held me in my own deployment zone. So I no longer had that opportunity for a late game push, which then forced me for an early game push. And the points were still pretty close in that game throughout. So the army still played well, but it was never able to quite get that swing to get back in the winning position. Uh, understood. Yeah, thanks for that explanation. We have a segment on the show we call, I guess, now kind of apropos the brutal and cunning or the cunning but brutal uh, depending <laughs> on which way you look at it uh, and that's where we talk about like a, a a cool combo that you always make sure that you have a few command points saved for or that you're you're waiting to, to pull off you know and it, it sounds kind of like you play almost like death by a thousand cuts you know just uh, you know only investing when you absolutely have to but do you have one of those combos that you do keep in your in your back pocket that you you know can help dig you out of a bad situation uh yeah I mean as you mentioned there are aren't exactly any massive pushes that the army does. Um, But a lot of the times, the two most common combos that can swing the game is a battle wagon pushing forward, usually getting killed by some big threat on the other side, and then that threat dying to all the bomb squigs, and usually with the battle wagon dying, it drops out a block of boys that are obsec. And generally, those 10 obsec boys put a line of tank busters in front of them because they're all in the same vehicle, and it makes it really hard for your opponent to dig them out. And what that often can do is, if you and your opponent are both playing stranglehold, that swings it uh, an extra four points of primary into your favor for holding more objectives, and it cuts three points down from your opponent because of their stranglehold. Uh, So it's a seven-point swing every time that happens. Another thing that happened very often is due to the fact that the squig bombs can be thrown in Overwatch, between the squig bombs and the surprise stratagem, it was often able to destroy things that were trying to steal objectives from me. So I had Hive Tyrants deep striking down in the back lines, making charges in the commandos. You throw the bomb squig at them, get a couple mortal wounds off, cast the surprise, punch them down, and you're basically able to preserve your back lines. So you have uh, the surprise play with the commandos as defensive, and you have the battle wagon play for offensive. And that's another reason I would go for a battle wagon rather than a kill rig, because once the kill rig dies, all of its damage output is mostly gone. You only have the boys inside. Whereas if a battle wagon dies, because there's so many different units inside of it, the only thing you really lose is the mobility. Oh, because what you can put in there. Exactly. Uh, Because the kill rig, you can only 
put the 10 Beast Naga Boys in there. Or I guess a character, but usually you wouldn't. So you put the 10 Beast Naga Boys in there, and that's all you have. And so the kill rig, it's relying on itself for the combat, it's relying on itself for the shooting, and it's itself for the psychic. Once it dies, it's kind of over. If you kill the battle wagon, it still has all those tank buses inside with all their rockets. It still Just has the all beginning. the troops. Exactly. So you're only losing the mobility, which means that the only time you're kind of sad about a battle wagon dying is if it's first turn in your own deployment zone, which is very rare, but it's what happened in the semifinals. Yeah. Wow. Really interesting stuff here. I want to go back to a couple more questions about how you play the army. Wag is something I heard from, I think, someone in the chat where you were commentating on your game. They were like, Marshall likes to call the wag like turn two or turn three. Usually you see orc players call it wag turn one. What is your process and what turn you call the WA? Uh, so as far as when I call the WA, it depends a lot on how much of your army can make use of it and how much of it matters. The reason you usually see it early on is because the two most common lists are Free Buddhas and Goff Rush, at least historically, or perhaps Evil Sons Speed Mob. Until people hear about this list. This is the new Yeah, hopefully. Inspire <laughs> some uh, more Orc players to come back into things. I know you inspired Mark Perry. He's been all about this Blood Axe thing for like the past two weeks, and I was, he was like, I watched the stream. Teams, and I was like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> awesome. That's so exciting. I love hearing more Orc players being like, okay, yeah, maybe I'll come back to Orcs. Uh, I've had a lot of Orc players come to me and they're like, okay, you know, I've been playing Eldar recently, but you know, maybe I'll come back. And that's always an exciting thing. I did not mean to distract us from the from the Wa talk. Ah, yes, the Wa talk. Uh, <laughs> so the reason usually you see the Wa turn one or two is, for example, if you are playing Freebooters or Speed Mob, you're looking at a turn one, just decimation of your opponent's army. You're hoping that your planes will do a lot of damage. All of your vehicles are putting out shots, and since it's the shooting phase, generally able to get a lot of use out of your army. Uh, so generally you'd see the WA turn one definitely, rarely turn two. With Goff Rush, you're generally having a lot of truck boys, uh, commandos, storm boys, uh, mega knobs, things that are able to get up in the enemy's face turn one and turn two and just overwhelm them. Uh, whereas with this army, there's not that much going on. You don't have any truck boys. Uh, you don't have as many storm boys flying up you could be super aggressive with your commandos but they play so much of the mission that you don't want to throw them away turn one and because of that generally your opponent and you are still about 20 inches away from each other throughout the majority of the game with the general masses of your army which means that if they're throwing forward only as many units as they need to take the center steal some objectives in that trade back and forth you generally don't need to call the wall because between your bomb squigs and having one unit charge out you don't need the extra movement because you're still just going to towards the midfield that's why this wall is usually played maybe turn three uh Turn three is probably the average. There was a couple of exceptions where it was turn four or turn two, uh, because generally, until you're doing that last explosion with the beehive to try and swing the game, you're not really trying to cross any real distance. Uh, so the wah, I mean, two of the eight games, I actually never used the wah even once uh, at that tournament. It's kind of just a wow. tool to scare your opponents, say, hey, you better stay back in your deployment zone because I have 19 units of orcs here that can punch you. Yeah, I actually really like the control it gives you because it's just a, it's a huge threat range, and once you have once you call it, you lose the threat range aspect of your army. It's not just there. You deliver it. So the fact that you're playing the back half of the game makes perfect sense you'll hold the wog off. Yeah, you realize how slow orcs are once you don't have the wall anymore. You're like, oh man, my commandos are only moving six inches. My beast snaggers are only moving five. It gets really hard really quick. Yeah, definitely. So you, um, I feel like with your list, there you have all these different mortal wound outputs and they're going to be in a lot of different spots along the table. You have your battle wagon core, you have your commandos on the flanks, the squid hog rider, 
writers are wherever they can kind of go, I suppose. And it's probably hard to concentrate all your bomb squigs and mortal wound output in the same spot. Has that ever been an issue for you or do you just kind of make do? Um, that can sometimes be difficult if your opponent, if you what you're wanting to use your bomb squigs on are like Harlequins, for example. Because Harlequins, uh, they did rule that the minus six inch to your range does affect squig bombs. And so that became really difficult, that 12 inch to six inch. But if you look at that 12 inch range from the perspective of if you're using it in Overwatch, that's always in range. If you're inside your battle wagons, which is where more half of all of the squig bombs are, with the battle wagons carrying them, they basically have a 24 inch range. And so generally it was pretty easy to get them where I wanted. Uh, another big aspect of the squig bombs is the fact that they are out of line of sight. And so generally you would use them to whittle down uh, mouse scepters, hive tyrants, big blocks of warriors, for example, that were taking the midfield so that you would only have to charge in with one, maybe two units. And then the rest of your army can be behind these obscuring walls, throwing out their squig bombs, and there's no trading happen because while you're doing a lot of damage out of line of sight, you're not poking out with your guns. You're not stepping forward with the models so that you can get shot by death spitters or by Tau or whatever. You found a way to make indirect work again. Look yes. <laughs> the only problem with this indirect is it's not indirect at the opponent's army. It's specifically only at the units they're trading. It's just kind of helping your tr units trade up because they're being supported. So you don't really look for, and I guess it's matchup by matchup, which we'll get to, but you don't, you're not really looking for the hardest target that's hard for your army to kill and mortal wounded away. You're just kind of use, letting it help your damage output throughout the game. Mostly, yeah. Uh, sometimes it's nice to get a couple extra mortal wounds out, but due to the fact that uh, they are tank busters and beast snaggers for a lot of the army and the commandos have plus one to wound, uh, there's not a big difference between toughness or durability of a target, uh, whether it's warriors, mouse scepters, knights. The army kind of has an e uh, average time dealing with all targets due to that plus one to wound, the plus one to hits against bigger targets. It kind of balances out. Do you struggle with like the one-up save profiles, like Terminators and cover, that kind of thing? Oh, man, Terminators. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah. Oh, is this a sore subject? Well, uh, round one, not to get too much into specific game battles, but uh, round one was against Dark Angels Terminators. I think he had like a full squad of 10 knights uh, and then like 25 other Terminators with a whole bunch of four-up transhuman, two-up save, one-up in cover against my guys, so all my choppas weren't doing much. And let me tell you, it, it was really hard. And uh, the, of course, it came into play that the more squig bombs I had, it didn't really matter which target I threw them at, because if I threw it at a character, great, I'm trying to character snipe. If you're throwing it at Terminators, one squig bomb can kill a full Terminator, and that is a 10x return on points. Yeah. The squig bombs, uh, keep talking about them. You know, we talked about, you know, or you mentioned earlier about overwatching, a, you know, a, a hive tyrant to death, and that is like the <laughs> It seems like the worst way to go. It, the Overwatch is only D3 mortals, but like the it, it adds up is the vibe I got. Unless I'm wrong. Oh, no, no. It definitely adds up. But it's like the, series, the fact that it can happen, though. Yeah, you know, it's it, the combination it, between the mortals, because whether it's Overwatch or shooting, Squig Bombs don't care. Uh, the other benefit that it has is the fact that you play the surprise stratagem with it, and then suddenly you're getting a lot more mortal wounds. So while we're talking about squigs, you have a three-man and a six-man squig hog unit. Why yes. not three by three or any other combination of things? Uh, that's another good question that I've actually been looking at in future iterations of the list. In the GT before the Seattle Open, I had three squads of three, kind of added a little bit more utility. Then I found that I maybe wanted a couple Storm Boys, and that forced me to consolidate three of them into a unit of six in order to just fit inside one detachment. And I found that it actually wasn't that bad. Usually people stray away from that because squig hogs have only leadership six. So you lose even just one and you're in a bad spot. But what I found is between uh, 
helping mitigate opponent opponents' interruptions in combat. Uh, you're able to get more squigs being able to fight. And I think that the squig hogs are actually really good. If I were to look deeper into the list, see some things I might change, I might consider taking even more squig hogs. Really? You liked them that much? I know a lot of players who play Oryx and do successfully with them do typically run like a, a moderate amount of them, kind of like what you're running, like the 8 to 12 range. What do they? What role do they serve? What are they, what are they there for? So squig hogs do a lot for the army. Um, it brings in a lot of multi-damage attacks. It allows you to be able to <clears throat> move quickly. They have got their 12-inch move, so on the wall, they're doing a lot of damage. Uh, they they just kind of play this deletion game. You can throw a squad of squ six squig hogs at basically anything, and it'll evaporate. And since they're only 25 points a model, and squig bombs are only five points, that means that a full squad of six only takes 160 points, which is pretty cheap. Um, so they're able to trade up into most things they go into. In addition, uh, since squig bombs, again, we talk about this a lot, but essentially, if you have a bad matchup, squig bombs are what saves you. If you have a good matchup, you don't really need them. But squig bombs are not a model-by-model uh, model upgrade. It's just for the unit. So even if they kill five of the squig hogs, that squig hog is still able to fall back and shoot, advance and shoot, and he's throwing out his squig bombs that his unit had uh, just all by himself. So even just one lone squig hog can sometimes make a big swing, stand on an objective, throw out some mortal wounds, charge into a unit of only a couple models left and wipe them out. Because they have like six, seven attacks each on the charge on in the wall. Yeah, no, seriously. It's really cool seeing it all come together. It's all, it's like very tough in its own unique way. And it's just hard to actually get a beat on what your army's trying to do. So there's no, no like thing to attack. It's just like there. That's, that's a great point is that you look at it as like, oh, there's a, there's a bunch of orcs. You know, there's a little bit of redundancy. There's a, you know, it's like yeah, he's got all those, those terrain captured. Like, what do I even do? Like, where do I where do I start my process? And uh, another nice thing about them is, as you mentioned, they're tough. They are toughness six, which in the current meta is spectacular. The amount of times that opponent was shooting strength five weapons on them and wounding on fives, or shooting at them with the uh, new and improved cannons on venoms or <laughs> whatever those are called again, uh, the shuriken. Oh, I thought you were trying to say venom cannons. It's like cannon on venoms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. The shuriken cannons. The shuriken cannons, uh, yeah. You know, those are strength six. It's an effectively a minus one to wound. If they're shooting at them with venom cannons, for example, if they're really like dedicated to anti-shooting, you just pop the strat to make them have transhuman. And your opponent just has a really hard time. Like, do I shoot the small arms fire and do basically nothing? Do I put the big arms fire into them and have these battle wagons pummel me all game? Uh, they just play really well into giving your opponent bad decisions. Yeah, you, it's never satisfying to shoot a squig hog rider. It's always more work than it's worth and it feels bad and you're like, what am I doing? Definitely felt yeah. that way before. Yeah, it's like, oh yes, I killed four squig hog riders. And it's like, okay, that was only 100 points and I still have all of my bombs. And that's like what you did that shooting phase. You're like, that, that was it? Yeah, it's like great. I'll just pull that unit back, and they'll just be my backup vacuum if you have tiny units later on. Uh, one of the things you mentioned a few minutes ago was the fact there's low leadership. So even like the the simplest of casualties, the casualties as as they were, uh, could cause you some big problems. Do you, do you find maybe going into armies that have any kind of leadership manipulation? You know, if they start to come into the forefront, like with Chaos Knights and that kind of stuff, do you feel like you're going to have pause or maybe have to revisit the drawing board on on your choices? That's a good question. Um, I found that it very rarely ever mattered, specifically because I was blood axes. Um, the army essentially has an average of 16 different command points to use in a game. And so spending those two command points to keep that squig hog boy alive sometimes is very much worth 
worth it. Plus, you can auto-pass morale twice if you have a war boss nearby. And so even if you need it here and there to pass morale in an obsec unit to guarantee points and then pass morale in the squig hogs, they're not running away. I didn't really find it to be a problem. I'd often finish games with three command points left, even after just throwing them around. That's pretty good. That's some good discipline. I, one trend I've noticed with top-level org lists is they don't have a beast boss on Squigasaur. And I, I just, every time I play against them, the guy kicks my butt. So why isn't he here? Uh, the beast boss on Squigasaur is in a tough spot right now um, for a couple reasons. Why he's not in this list is because the best build, I think, for a beast boss on Squigasaur right now is sticking him full of a Edwapa's Kill Choppa and Brutal But Cunning, and he can just basically blend any unit. Without those, he's usually not able to treat trade up like you want him to. Uh, the downside of that is in this army, you already have to put Brutal But Cunning on Snickrot, otherwise he can't take any Warlord trait, and without it, he's not really very good of a damage dealer anyway, and so that kind of pulls that draw away. And then, again, because the army is very cohesive, you're relying on a lot of units, if you have that Beast Boss on Squigasaur, you're generally holding him back in your own line uh, in order to get those heroic interventions like the with a war boss and mega armor. And then you add in the fact that he is 175 points now, and it's kind of hard to make that choice and say, okay, I'd rather take him rather than my war boss and mega armor, and for what? A couple of squig attacks? Some extra movements? The inability to go inside a battle wagon? It's just really hard to rationalize him specifically in this army. I think he might still have some play in snake bites, uh, funnily enough, so I think snake bites aren't that bad, um, just because it gives them that plus one to wound, and then you don't have to use those specific traits on him. That's okay. I, I'm with you. If you can't run the best beast boss, don't run the beast boss. I just like I shell shocks me. You know, I have to ask. Well, I mean, Nick, we're we're clearly trying to demystify this list. That's true. So it's true. So, like, Marshall, we, we we might not even know what we don't know. Like, what have we not asked yet that's, like, critical to the, the Great big Great question, Paul. Seriously, like, we're doing, make sure we're doing a good job here, Marshall. <laughs> Um, so the difficult part is, uh, the tank busters, they basically do nothing with their rockets all game. And so they're kind of a weird unit where people look at them and they say, okay, this unit puts out four D three strength, eight minus two, three damage shots every turn. And you have three of them in the army. And that sounds intimidating until you run the numbers and you're like, oh, he's only hitting me with two rockets a turn. So then you look at, okay, what do they actually do? And it's, you look at the tank busters, and I think tank busters are MVPs in this list. Between the squig bombs, their tank buster bombs, and their tank hammer, the unit, if it's going against a, a vehicle army, for example, custodies or harlequins, these guys are coming out and essentially over the course of the game, dealing 4d3 plus d6 mortal wounds. That is insane. I've had tank busters come out and say, oh, you have a hive tyrant sitting there with a bunch of wounds left, five wounds left. We'll throw a squig bomb at him. We'll hit him with a tank hammer. That's an average of five mortal wounds right there. And so that's kind of their responsibility. They're kind of this really weird unit that doesn't do much, but does mortal wounds and it's super cheap and it's just kind of obnoxious for opponents to deal with. Uh, that's one of the weird things about the army. Uh, the storm boys are another kind of weird aspect of it. Funnily enough, I didn't really see them do anything <laughs> for the whole tournament. Uh, I think they would maybe be one of the units I would cut. Um, other I, I than thought that, they were just... in there for sure. Like aircraft management, you know, just in case the harpies are, you know, you needed something to finish something off in, in that phase of the game that they, they existed for that reason. Yeah, absolutely. Harpies uh, were a nightmare. Uh, definitely the most obnoxious <laughs> unit for me because they were able to drop those bombs on the commandos wipe half the commando unit out in one go in the movement phase. Um, they have the perfect damage forward to hurt the battle wagons. And uh, as you mentioned, basically nothing in the army can really attack it. Paul and I are starting a new club. It's been it's called being touched by a harpy. 
<laughs> she recovery. Also, you can be one of the honorary members. Harpy Recovery Club. Harpy Recovery Club. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd say another uh, requirement for this list in the future is you need to find something that can take out a harpy. Um, I've got a couple ideas for it, but nothing that's in the list right now is really able to deal with it. Tractor cannons. Is this the auto hit? <laughs> uh, I think they get a plus one to hit against flyers, so it balances out, but it's not really worth it. I'd say mega cannons are still for sure the way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, if I didn't have those two battle wagons, I'd say the best route is to just fill it up with a lot more uh, grot cannons, because since they're hitting on fours, the worst they can get against a harpy is hitting on fives which is still twice as effective as any other orc unit and they're dirt cheap so if you're worried about harpies you could just throw three four five of those things in the back and just say okay i'll just get rid of the harpies yeah i think that's a great suggestion i have just long range firepower helps a lot in the tier in meta but that's something we can get over into part two Paul, do you have any other questions you want to ask Marshall while we're over here? No, I think it's very clear we're just scratching the surface. So if, if you're not uh, you know, thinking about joining us in part two, I highly suggest that you do. Uh, and of course, we'll remind everybody to like, share, subscribe, and make sure that you do comment. Let us know what, you know, what kind of stuff you want to hear from conversations like this. I know this has been pretty uh, eye-opening for me. Seeing, even seeing this play a few times, and I could see exactly what you were trying to do You know, once you were establishing the board presence and stuff, but I know it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, you know, and obviously doing really well with it. And I want to dive deep into that, the, how you approach these matchups in part two of this conversation. Yeah, same here, Marshall. It's been a pleasure having you on the Art of War podcast. Uh, it's been a great talking to you. You're very articulate. You know your stuff, and it's always inspirational listening to a really cool off-the-wall build that I personally have not seen, considered, or even thought of at all. I, I I'm really, jazzed. I want to go build a battle wagon. Yeah, this is really cool. Really amazing stuff you've done here. I hope other work players also are inspired to try some cool stuff, and just players in general. There's so many builds in 40K now. You can, uh, you can always find something that works for you. Everybody hang tight. Uh, if you're not joining us in conversation, part two of this conversation, we will see you next week. Uh, Marshall, thanks for joining us. Nick, it's been a pleasure. Catch you all in a minute. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com.